T-shirts that read, kill your TV. Lyrics that sang, what would people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak, along with something about bellies wiggling like marmalade jelly. Separate places to go to school where you could learn biblical science instead of secular science. Prohibitions against getting tattoos and listening to secular music. Skipping trick-or-treating on Halloween to go to Hallelujah Night at your church instead. As strange as this may sound to some of you, this was the normal life of a Christian teenager in the 80s or 90s in the United States, and it reflected a particular theological view of culture. Jump ahead to the early 2000s, to mid-2000s even, and many of those same kids are now in churches that open up their worship services with a, quote, secular cover song. I'll never forget the one time that I attended a conference at one of these seeker-friendly churches, and they, they opened up their service with a rocking rendition of Keep On Trucking. Even my home church that I grew up in, which was really a prosperity gospel, charismatic church, developed a, an additional service like this, where we do everything from cover U2 and Foo Fighter songs to even as I'm ashamed to recall, opening up service with a puddle of mud song. Fast forward to today, and many of those people have become one of the nuns, the, the ones not affiliated with any particular church or religion, but, but practice their own DIY spirituality. Others still have moved into churches that boast gay pride flags in their front lawn and march for women's reproductive rights. Underneath each of these different iterations of church and religious practice are assumptions about how God is at work or not at work in culture. Many of us just assume a certain theology of culture without ever reflecting on whether it's actually true or what the alternatives are. I know I was a bit unaware of this as a 20-year-old playing that puddle of mud song, and as silly as that example is, One's theology of culture is actually one of the most important areas of belief in their life. So in today's episode, we're going to wrestle with the question, where is Christ in culture? One of the difficulties that comes with trying to figure out where Christ is at work in culture uh, stems from the problem of even being able to define culture. Augustine said of time in the Confessions, what is time? If no one asks me, I know. If I want to explain it to someone who asks me, I do not know. In many ways, trying to define culture is quite similar to trying to explain time to someone. We all have a general sense and instinctive knowing, but giving some sort of clear, coherent description of what culture is is a lot more difficult. In fact, the term culture hasn't even been around that long. The term actually arises in the early modern period, in places like France, where they described culture as the civilizing process. And in, in Germany, culture was considered the, the national spirit. In Britain, the term culture was used as a way of defining education towards the refinement of the human being. And in America, it just became an 
a word that was synonymous with certain anthropological distinctives, like this culture versus that culture in the very multicultural melting pot of early America. So because the term is relatively new and the study of culture and other disciplines is a relatively new study, intentional reflection on a theology of culture is a pretty new discipline in the history of the church. One such notable, more recent theologian of culture, probably better known for his work in black liberation theology, is the, the theologian Dwight Hopkins. Dwight Hopkins identified three aspects of culture. He identified culture as what he called spirit, culture as aesthetic, and culture as labor. Culture as spirit, for Hopkins, meant that culture is the animating ethos of a people group. Their ideas, their beliefs and practices, their certain attitudes, they have patterns of thought. This is understanding the spirit of one's culture. They, they have a shared story, a meta-narrative that's produced in and through things like media. It's produced through religious education and literature, science, popular art, and other forms of institutional practice. But there's also culture as aesthetic. The shared story, that culture as spirit that we just talked about, the ideas, the values, even the prejudices, all of those things take expression in the aesthetic of a culture. This is the, the way that the cultural spirit of a people finds expression in artistic presentation. Institutions like religious organizations like churches or educational institutions or even media will use the aesthetic of a culture to communicate the culture's spirit the that will communicate the animating ethos of that people group. And finally for Hopkins, there again is the culture as labor, culture as the work, vocation, the economic relationship between people in that given society or large community. As Hopkins writes, culture emerges out of the human energy, creativity, and struggle exerted by the human person, individual self or communal selves in relation to nature, technologically refined and raw and natural, and in relation to various human beings occupying definite societal positions. So for Hopkins, culture isn't simply a matter of art. It's not simply a matter of philosophical ideal. Culture emerges out of the ways humans have to actually struggle with nature, struggle to master nature, or struggle to work with nature to provide for themselves, to survive, to exchange their own sorts of talents, abilities, goods, and services to other people for mutual benefit, or in worst cases, to subjugate other people. All three of these aspects are not independent categories that can stand by themselves. Culture as spirit, culture as aesthetic, and culture as labor are all interwoven, codependent on each other. You don't have ideas without an expression of those ideas. You don't have spirit without, without the aesthetic. You don't have the creation of aesthetic works of art without labor. 
without the human energy, creativity, and struggle exerted by those human persons to take raw materials from nature, refine those, change those, and turn them into expressions of ideas. So culture is multifaceted. As one of my own seminary professors, Dr. Ken Reinhut, put it, culture is part of this complex, interrelated, nested web of meaning. In America, for example, this culture, this larger metaculture, is made up of all sorts of different kinds of subcultures. You have, you have religious cultures, you have ethnic cultures, you have these sorts of tech cultures of Silicon Valley, you have art culture and entertainment culture, you have political culture, and all of these have sometimes their their own unique cultural spirit, they might have their own unique aesthetic, they might have their own unique labor, and this interconnected web, which is really, really complex, works together and sometimes is at odds with each other, but it's all part of a larger metaculture that we might share here in the United States or wherever you're listening to this podcast from. You're, you probably have some sort of national or larger metaculture that makes up your society, and that's part of a really intricate and crazy web of smaller subcultures. All right, so if we're going to boil down culture into a single sentence definition, I would say this is the best one I can think of, that culture is simply an entire way of life for a group of people. Now, just as I've talked about in numerous previous podcasts, from the very beginning, not even from the beginning of Christianity, but we could trace this all the way back to the very very beginning of God's working through a particular people group in Israel and his calling of Abraham. From Abraham all the way through the early age of the church, the people of God have always operated as a subculture within a larger, already established culture. In the case of Abraham, who is living in an ancient Near Eastern civilization where polytheism was the norm, human sacrifice was the norm. Abraham's calling out of that sort of culture was not a complete removal from culture altogether. In fact, God had to have communicated to Abraham in a language that he could understand, a language that would have been part of a particular culture. Even at the height of Israel's powers in the reign of King David and King Solomon, Israel never becomes a dominant culture on the scene in the same way the Babylonians were, or later the the Greeks or the Romans. Fast forward to the birth of the church, and early Christianity exists as a very, very minor religious sect in the larger Roman Empire. As theologian H.R. Niebuhr identified, the enduring problem for Christianity has always been Christianity's relationship to the civilization it inhabits. There's little doubt that even certain practices or beliefs or language used in the scriptures comes from cultures or is juxtaposed against cultures that predate it. We could even go back, for example, to Abraham and God's calling of Abraham to 
sacrifice his son Isaac. We modern people, right, we look back on that story with horror, <laughs> and it's uh, one of the more challenging stories for us to try to communicate to people because it, it, it so offends our, our modern notions of what's ethical. But in Abraham's day, human sacrifice was normal. The sacrificial idea of killing a human, a child, or an animal to appease the gods was normal to him in his day and age. It was part of the cultural soup that he was swimming in. So to hear a voice tell him, I want you to give up your, your firstborn son and offer him as a sacrifice, while it was certainly a, a significant act of faith for Abraham, was not outside of what would have been normative in his cultural context. And yet something about this story also communicates that God isn't simply telling Abraham, oh, I want you to do for me what's normal in your culture to do as an act of worship to the gods. In fact, we see that God differentiates himself from the other practices of the Abraham's ancient Near Eastern neighbors by stopping his hand and the act of sacrifice and providing an alternative, a point of differentiation from his culture. But this has been what people, Christians, have wrestled with for the past two millennia, is where at certain points is God working to communicate truth about himself within culture, and when are Christians called to oppose culture or cultural ideas of what's true, good, and beautiful? Another example I believe I've referenced before in previous podcasts is how John, in, the, in John's gospel, the first chapter, that John says, in the beginning, referring to Christ, was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Well, John's use of Logos here is hardly an original concept. We can take this all the way back to the Greeks who had reasoned in Stoic philosophy that if there was an ultimate reality an uncreated creator, a mind behind all of the matter, that that ultimate mind, that ultimate reality would be beyond comprehension, would be in a certain sense in its pure actuality beyond knowing. So what would need to take place in order for us to have any sort of understanding of the world or this ultimate reality was that there would need to be a mediating principle, a, a go-between ultimate reality and the lesser reality of matter. And this go-between was the Logos. And while we can't know whether or not John had any specific insight into this particular person's writings, Philo of Alexandria was a first century BC Jewish philosopher who was influenced by Hellenistic thought, lived before John, taught that the, the Logos was, um, borrowing again from the Stoic idea, that the Logos was an intermediary between God and the cosmos, God and humanity, as some sort of uh, agent, acting agent of creation, an agent through which uh, the humanity can come to know, comprehend what would be ultimately unknowable and unfathomable. Now, does this mean that the Stoics were inspired and Philo of Alexandria were inspired in the same way that John, the author of John's gospel, was inspired? No, I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting that this has, this illustrates the problem that, that Christians have had to wrestle with for the past 
2,000 years and even Jews going on before that is what is the relationship between God's revelation of himself and the beliefs, the practices of beauty and labor that a culture might come to. It's at this point that I want to unpack one of the most important works in theology of culture written by the 20th century theologian H.R. Niebuhr, who I've already referred to already. Niebuhr looked back at the previous, well, at that point, 1900 or so years of Christian history and identified five different types or patterns that were common throughout the history of Christianity, patterns of engagement, Christian engagement or lack of engagement with culture five different types of theological attitudes Christians may hold to regarding Christ's work at culture. And he did this to ultimately try to answer the question of where is Christ in culture? So if you haven't read it before, one of my biggest book recommendations, if you have not read this book before, it should be necessary reading for for anybody who is wrestling with theology and trying to figure out, maybe even reflect on their own theological journey. Everybody should read Christ and Culture by H. Richard Niebuhr. Again, Christ and Culture, the author is H. Richard Niebuhr or H.R. Niebuhr and pick that up. You know, for some of you, you might find it to be a bit academic, but if you're listening to this podcast, I think it's something that you can totally handle and digest. What I want to do is I want to go through and explain for you, give you a, a basic summary of each of these five different positions, these five different types. And what I want you to do is I want you, as I'm going through these, to kind of reflect on your own journey or maybe some of your own assumptions about where Christ is at work or not at work in culture. And I want you to see where you have identified in the past, where you might say your your upbringing has been or your current tradition up until this point. And then as we get through to the end, I mean, the ultimate question we want to ask is, what is the right way to understand Christ's relationship to culture in this diverse, tangled web of meaning that is culture, where do we find genuine truth, goodness, and beauty? Well, if you remember back to the beginning of the podcast when I was talking about my own experiences as a Christian kid in the 80s and 90s, seeing t-shirts that read Kill Your TV and going to our alternative Christian schools, which were teaching an alternative form of science up against the secular science and the the lectures and talks we'd heard against the various evils of listening to this thing called secular music. These sorts of attitudes represent in many ways what Niebuhr called all the way back in 1951, Christ against culture. In this view, nature, the material world, and the subsequent human creation of culture are utterly corrupted by the sinful actions of human beings. Because of this corruption, human reason can't be trusted, and and thus there needs to be a clear line of demarcation drawn between reliance on sinful reason, which we see embodied in culture, 
and reliance on biblical revelation. These lines need to be drawn. So on the one side, you have culture, which is really the embodiment of humans' sinful, fallen, broken reasoning. And on the other side, the other team is those who rely on biblical revelation embodied in what Niebuhr highlighted as the, the, quote, new law of Christ. So sometimes this type is called the new law type. So if the fundamental theological presupposition is the fallenness of the world, the fallenness and the sinful brokenness of humanity, and thus the sinful brokenness of human reasoning, then what loyalty to Christ looks like is a rejection of society and a rejection of the larger culture. The secular world, again, this is the, the world of kind of 80s and 90s evangelicalism, where you frequently heard about things being secular or not secular. The secular world is totally pagan and corrupt. Now, while I'm highlighting that this is largely the experience of many kids that grew up as evangelicals or, or even were in their adult years in the 80s and 90s. This is actually a, a posture that has been held by Christians going way, way, way further back than the 80s or 90s. But maybe let's stop for a minute and think about what might have led people to come to this conclusion and to not just dismiss them as being crazy, right? You have to keep in mind, for example, like my parents' generation— my parents are baby boomers, and they had gone through and lived through and seen in their teenage years and into their uh, college years, they had seen this radical revolution that took place in the United States, the sexual revolution, the free love, and the hippie movement. They saw this very countercultural revolution take place, and then they started to see, as we get into the later 70s and early 80s, sort of the, the, the fruits of some of that movement, the free love the sexual revolution of that time. And what they started to see was this shift in change in mass media and popular culture. My parents, I, they would frequently lament, and rightfully so, <laughs> about the, the changes in television from when they were a kid watching wholesome Leave it to Beaver to the MTV stuff that was coming on in my childhood. So in many ways, it made a lot of sense to take on this Christ against culture position. You could see the sort of sinful effects of the fall, very present and evident in culture. So what should we do? Well, we're going to try to we're going to try to break away from the meta culture of our society, and we're going to we're going to attempt to create our own subcultures. And again, this isn't a new concept. You could actually even go back to before the birth of Christ to the Essene community that lived in Palestine roughly around the time of Jesus. Those people who felt as if there was this terrible contamination in this Greco-Roman culture that had infiltrated Jewish life, and these people were setting themselves apart they felt that loyalty to God meant that they withdraw completely from the culture. They would live outside of Jerusalem. They'd go out and live in the wilderness to create uh, their own culture. Again, this is this is where the, the reason why the Dead Sea Scrolls have been were found and preserved. These were in Essene communities. We also see this with early Christian communities who were 
rejected by the the Jewish subculture of the first century. Again, keep in mind, the earliest converts to Christianity are Jewish, and they are brushing up against the Jewish culture that they inhabit and being rejected, experiencing rejection. But then the early Christian community also finds themselves at constant odds with the larger Greco-Roman culture they inhabit. Uh, an early church father that might best re- represent this sort of Christ-against-culture attitude is Tertullian. In seminary, I read this scathing rebuke by Tertullian against uh, the very idea of Christians uh, attending or going to the Roman stadiums to to view the, quote, games, as Tertullian would have called it, which included you know, the gladiatorial contests, the humans fighting against animals, the chariot races. He railed against that and said, listed this long list of reasons why Christians can't be a Christian and go to those things. And you read Tertullian, and a lot of times he sounds in many ways like maybe a youth pastor in the 80s and 90s warning their youth group about you know, listening to Rage Against the Machine or going to this concert or watching MTV. And so if you read Tertullian's argument and you maybe reflect back on your youth pastor's advice, it's not that the reasons that they give are without warrant or that they're totally, totally unreasonable. In fact, there's a lot of truth to be found in Tertullian's ideas. He highlights some real unique ways in which you know, he brings up how, again, and you can read, uh, you know, if you just even search online for Tertullian on the games, you can kind of read his, his you know, scathing rebuke of what happens at these, these um, Roman games and contests and gladiatorial events. And he can, he connects how it's actually connected to the worship of idols. And you go, wow, I can actually see that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And for my parents' generation, again, I'm 35, so many of you who are listening that might be my age or down to your late 20s or even into your 40s can perhaps connect on this point that in a lot of ways, the action of our parents' generation to take a Christ-against-culture approach did make a lot of sense at the time. Just like Tertullian, there were deep concerns about the threat of being assimilated into this larger culture that didn't share the values of the kingdom of God. It had very different values. And so to take a posture and say, we're going to draw a line in the sand and everything on this line of the sand is um, is permitted and everything on, on the other side of the line is prohibited, it, you know, there's some, there's some sense in that kind of strategy. I was even ris- listening recently to the Ferment podcast. My friend Adam Russell puts on that podcast. Maybe you remember from a few episodes back, I reposted the interview with me that he did for his podcast. But recently he was interviewing a, a songwriter uh, by the name of Sam Yoder, who had actually grown up in an Amish community. And as I, you know, I've never even set foot on an Amish community, but I have, you know, some at least historical awareness of, uh, the practice of the Amish people, but as he, as he was sharing his story of kind of growing up in this Amish community 
and leaving his family, leaving at one point when he was very young, uh, there was a lot about what he shared that even though I was never Amish, I could identify with. Because in many ways, the Amish and the Mennonites and Quakers, they, they really embody this Christ against culture approach. And in fact, they take it in some ways more, much more seriously than sort of the evangelical youth group culture of the 80s and 90s did. If you can identify with this sort of Christ against culture approach, and maybe again, like me, you had some point of shared history in those sorts of circles and maybe grew up in the the 80s or, or 90s, you know, as you reflect back, one of the things you might pick up and one of the problems with the Christ against culture approach is that it's really functionally impossible to remove all cultural influences from your community, from your your own subculture you're attempting to create. I even think back to as much as we were like, you know, anti-secular music, anti-any music that wasn't Christian music, you know, and the way that was evaluated was a interesting, an interesting proposition to begin with. But I remember back you uh, when I was a kid, you would go to the, the Christian bookstore. I know this sounds so strange to some of you that are maybe only in your early 20s or, or younger as you're listening to this, but I would go to the Christian bookstore and on the wall there was uh, next to the the, the Christian rock section, which is where I would always go to, Christian rock or Christian rap section, there would be a sign that said Christian music comparison chart. Maybe some of you are remembering this as I bring it up. And on this Christian music comparison chart would be a list of quote-unquote secular bands. And they would list them off. So for example, it might say Nirvana. And then uh, it would say, you know, comparable Christian band. And they'd list all the, the Christian bands that might be comparable, like like DC Talk or, you know, some tooth and nail record bands. And so the funny thing about this was that as much as we were trying to create a line of demarcation between the fallen, broken culture of the quote-unquote the world and the the culture of the church, we were still borrowing the music that was created. And even to the point where your goal was to try to find a like Christian substitute, right? So if you couldn't listen to Tupac, you would try to listen to T-Bone. <laughs> yes, there was a Christian hip-hop artist named T-Bone. Uh, he had a great song called Demon Executor. I loved that song. <laughs> But you can kind of see the problems that arise and the, the thoughts that start floating through your head as a young person when you start going, okay, what is it that if this sounds exactly, you know, tries to sound exactly like Tupac or this tries to sound exactly like, like Nirvana or something, are we just saying that the lyrics are the only thing that changes something from being Christian to being secular? And then you start to maybe evaluate some of the lyrics. And I remember one time having a sit down with my parents about this. I, I distinctly remember the CD was Plank Eye, another tooth and nail artist. And Tooth and Nail Records was one of the big, you know, Christian rock record companies. And I was listening to him in my room and my, 
you know, my parents just couldn't believe that it was Christian music. They thought I was listening to secular music. So what did they do? They said, hey, you know what? We need to, we need to go through these lyrics. And we got out back in the day the linear notes of that CD. And they opened up the lyrics and they went through it. And they went, we don't see a Christian message in these lyrics. You know, there's no talk of God or Jesus. And, you know, they kind of had a point. You know, a lot of a lot of the Christian music, there would, it was, you know, not necessarily or totally and in, entirely clear how, uh, aside from possibly, you know, just not having profanity or explicit sexual sorts of discussions in it, how it was necessarily that much different than, you know, uh, listening to a Nirvana song. So were we really Christ against culture? Did we really truly believe these sorts of theological presuppositions that the world is so broken and so fallen and so sinful and that all of human reasoning is sinful and broken do we really believe that if we in our churches started to adopt the sorts of musical styles that came from culture and all we would do would perhaps be change the lyrics to make it a Christian rock song or we would adapt the the music of the popular music of say a band like U2 who in many ways had far more quote-unquote Christian lyrics than even some of the Christian bands, and we're going to adopt that sound and bring it into our worship styles in the church. It, it brought about, brings about interesting questions that I, that I started remembering, I remember wrestling with as I started to get older about, okay, what, what really makes something secular or sacred? So not only is there the functional problem that you're never truly removed from culture unless you're going to somehow develop your own language and own food customs and your own music and your own way of doing art. And if you were to do that, would it not be somehow a derivative of the culture that you came from? It seems functionally impossible to do that. There's another way that it becomes very functionally difficult or dare I say, even impossible to pull off the Christ against culture uh, perspective successively throughout multiple generations. And, and Niebuhr brings this up. He notes that the, the consistent paranoia that people feel in this Christ against culture attitude of succumbing to cultural assimilation, it leads Christian communities to be unable, unable, I should say, to even have like basic loving dialogue with others they see as outsiders. Because what this type does, what this theological presupposition about Christ's activity or lack of activity in culture does, is it it forces you to make an in-group and an out-group. And so the people on the other side of the line that are in the secular world are always outsiders. And this was really, really tough. I mean, I still in many ways struggle with this in my adult years, though I had certainly plenty of exposure to people outside of my church and youth group playing sports and local city teams and AAU sports, et cetera, et cetera. It, it still is a problem that I, I wrestle with as an adult because the skill set that I had to kind of develop was that uh, 
I need to be in defense mode so that I'm not culturally assimilated. And we still see this today, guys. You know, prime example of, in many ways, still a sort of Christ against culture attitude is the kind of God's not dead sort of movies that come out that tell young people that they are in a culture war and they will be assimilated or lose this culture war when they head off to college and, and face that really, really smart atheist professor in their first year of college. And in many ways, even in my, my younger teaching days, I, I, I was kind of preparing young people for, for that sort of culture war. But it really is anxiety-inducing, and it really, it wears at you. I mean, you're just constantly on your guard, constantly looking out for, you know, to make sure you're not secretly enjoying the thing that you've been told is is demonic and trying to stay away from the outside group. But yet you do need to go to that outside group to evangelize to them. It, it, it really is a difficult position to constantly maintain. Those are some functional and practical problems. But what about the theological problems? In many ways, the Christ against culture attitude starts with the fallenness of creation and the sinfulness of humanity. Instead of starting at the beginning of the Christian story, in the beginning of the biblical narrative, which is God's created goodness in the world, that God has made a good creation that is, yes, it is fallen and broken, but it was ultimately good first. And some of the ways that that sort of low view creation also takes um, takes shape and form in this sort of Christ against culture mindset is it, it, it takes the shape of very strong anti-science attitudes too. And again, here's the theological reasoning. If we start with the brokenness of creation, that creation is broken, and if we start with a very strong view of the total depravity of man and the depravity of even their reasoning ability, what that's logically going to lead to is a suspicion, a suspicion of the sciences, especially when those sciences seem to come into conflict with one's interpretation of the Bible. You can see this in extreme forms in like flat earther Christians that are out there, but you can kind of also see it in the sort of, you know, um, kind of Ken Ham creation science out there, which operates under this presupposition that there is fundamentally a flaw in secular science, that there is a kind of atheist conspiracy of scientists who, because of their fallen nature and the brokenness and their sinfulness, any work they're going to do is going to lead people away from God's revelation. So that's how that sort of Christ against culture attitude takes shape and form, even when it comes to doing things like science. Another theological problem is that the Christ against culture position tends to pit the natural world and the spiritual world as being opposites. In many ways, it almost follows that same Gnostic heresy that the material world is so broken that it's the lesser world, and that the spiritual world is the world that you're attempting to transcend into, to, to leave the broken physical world and to transcend to the spiritual world. And 
so there's this sharp division in the Christ against culture mindset between this world of spirit, the world of grace, and the world of nature. And what it ends up doing is that it ends up creating a sort of all sorts of theological problems, problems with the doctrine of the incarnation, problems with the Trinity, and even the the imminence of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about just intellectual assent to these doctrines on paper. I'm talking about the Christ against culture mindset creates problems in how these doctrines, uh, historic Christian doctrines, are actually lived out and the implications of these doctrines and how one would see the world. In the Christ against culture mindset, the incarnation might be a sort of necessary step for one to actually have salvation because God has to take on the form of a man to live this holy, perfect life, to become the only spotless lamb who can purchase forgiveness of sins. That's typically the emphasis in the Christ against culture mindset when it comes to the doctrine of incarnation. But what it doesn't account for is what the incarnation means for the physical world and our physical bodies. This is God reclaiming the goodness of his creation and restoring it and giving us the hope of a future for something that's even far more glorious than the original state of creation, a resurrected and glorified body and physical world. In Christ Against Culture, these sorts of ideas are about, you know, escape, escaping the world. Salvation is a means of escape. The Holy, the Holy Spirit empowers believers to help other people on the outside escape the world. But it really struggles with how to make sense of any sort of apparent goodness, generosity, compassion, or Christ-like behavior, or fruits of the Spirit that you might see among those outsiders who are in secular culture. It's because of this, these reasons that Niebuhr considers the Christ against culture position to be one of two extreme positions that Christians take and have taken over the centuries. There's another ditch. If the pendulum swings all the way to the other side, there's another ditch that Christians can fall in, which might be in some regards an even more dangerous ditch than Christ against culture. If Christ against culture is one theological ditch, the theological ditch on the other side is what Niebuhr calls Christ of culture or the natural law accommodationist type. In this view, there's, there's no great tension between culture and Christ, the world and the church, or reason and revelation for that matter. The ethics of salvation and the quote, ethics of progress are one and the same. For these Christians, Jesus is the pinnacle of reason and the highest archetypal ideal for society. His law is available to all, not through grace, but through self-actualization. Why it's sometimes called the natural law type is because in this position, Christ and his law, his revelation, is synonymous with natural law, the law that we can deduce using our faculties of reason. 
This is the sort of Christianity of John Locke and Thomas Jefferson, the, the deist faith. In this view, the effects of the fall are minimal. The Christian faith is really no different than the common reason of culture. God has given us our faculties of reason through his good creation to understand the world, to understand things, to understand everything about him that we need to know. The scientific revolution and the enlightenment has showed us that the use of reason is far superior to the superstitious beliefs of the medieval period. This view answers the question, where is Christ in culture, by saying, well, Christ is the agent of progress in culture. Christ is the progressive force within culture that's constantly improving its morals and bringing about scientific improvements and improvements in people's state of living. This is the German liberal theology of people like Hegel and Schleiermacher. And there can be a, quite a bit of appeal to this type, this way of seeing the world, especially if one has been surrounded or by people that have been in the Christ against culture group or have spent any bit of time in this sort of Christ against culture uh, mindset. The appeal to those that have spent any time in that group and in that way of seeing the world is that one of the things you always wrestle with in the Christ against culture mindset is how so many things just seem to work when you use reason. How though you were very suspicious of evolution, for example, the science that made your computer work or your car work or your phone work seemed to work or the science that produced great marvels of medicine that brought so much health and well-being to people around the world. That, that seemed like a good thing and it seemed like it would be produced by people that had good ideas and don't those good ideas come from God? If not God, where do they come from? And so people who had heard almost all their life ideas that led them to this sort of belief that um, science was broken and flawed and this sort of belief that any sort of art or music that wasn't quote-unquote Christian music was was broken, it, it didn't mesh. It doesn't mesh with people's experiences when they go to the doctor and they get antibiotics that make them better, or they, they hear a beautiful piece of music and it stirs them, and they go, God, where are you in that? Are you in that? God, are you in this medicine somehow? Are you in this beautiful piece of art or music or literature that moves me and stirs up my appetite for good things, for truthful things, for beautiful things. You have to be in that somewhere. So people that come out of that Christ against culture position maybe feel like they they have to go to three places. One is just to kind of double down on, on the Christ against culture thing. The other option is to just, just become an atheist altogether. Because if if it's been told to you your entire life that God cannot be present in reason, he cannot be present in these eminent, broken things, that he's not there, not there, and yet instinctively you see it working in the world and you see good things, what you on a gut level feels like good happens in the world when we practice science and medicine, 
good things happen in you when you hear a beautiful piece of music and you might stir you to love your spouse or your kids better. And you just go, if he's not in that, maybe he's not real. That's the second option. The third option is a lot of people jump into this Christ of culture ditch. And you've seen that happen. I've seen that happen in my lifetime, right? As I kind of talked about at the beginning of the podcast, people kind of moving out of this Christ against culture and kind of dipping their toes in the water of culture and going, oh, there might be some good things here. Let's start off our church services with a Foo Fighters song. Let's uh, do a sermon series on a popular movie, right? And they go, oh, there is God's activity happening here in culture. And so they move into that. But what I also saw throughout my lifetime is a lot of people that move from Christ against culture into kind of dipping their toes in the water and going, oh, I see God is at work in culture. Because they weren't offered a mediating option, what ended up happening for so many of them is if they didn't become a nun, N-O-N-E, right? If they didn't move into just rejecting organized religious practice, rejecting organized Christian faith and church attendance altogether, what they ended up doing was they kept going deeper and deeper into this idea that goodness is found in culture, goodness is found in culture, to this almost exclusive view that goodness is only found in culture. They've gone full on into the Christ of culture mindset, where they can see no distinction between their own culture's values, what culture says is true, good, and beautiful, And they see no distinction between that and the values of Jesus. This practically takes the shape in churches. You can see this. You can see a church moving into Christ of culture when there is no, when that church holds to no distinct uh, view on human sexuality from the prevailing culture. It holds no distinct view on ethics or morality from the prevailing culture. And typically what it also moves into is a sort of religious pluralism, a, a unitive pluralism is the terminology of a guy like, for, for example, the, um, the, the liberal theologian John Hick, who ended up proposing that uh, all religions are just different names for the same experience of God. And I want to be clear on that point. I'm not suggesting that we hunker down and that the alternative to that is that all religions are in war and against each other. And I'm not suggesting that God has not potentially worked through any other religious system to possibly point people towards the full revelation of himself in Christ. But this is very different than the Christ of culture view, where you might have uh, on a Sunday morning, you might have a church that has you know, no problem putting um, an imam, a rabbi, a uh, priest, uh, we'll say a shaman on the platform together and have them all preach and at the end say, they all said the same thing. As long as what they had to say was in alignment with our culturally established values of truth, goodness, truth, goodness, and beauty, then we've got no problem with it. The Christ of culture too conveniently finds Jesus agreeing with every generation's ethical shifts or pet emphases. The Jesus of the New Testament, who is the only Jesus of history that we have, is no cultural chameleon. In fact, he's portrayed as the second person of the triune God, which you'll find 
isn't all that popular in the Christ of culture circles. Now, uh, you know, I've, I've highlighted here some of the weaknesses, some practical and theological weaknesses of this view, but there's also some things that Niebuhr highlights as possible positives and things that make this sort of view attractive. Uh, the first of which is that there is a sort of moral unity that Christians can have, that Christians who hold this Christ of culture view have with the culture around them. That sort of unification on shared ideas helps them functionally accomplish tasks that might have shared core values. This is why many churches who might be of this sort of Christ again, Christ of culture mindset might do quite a bit of work when it comes to positive work, when it comes to creation care and helping the environment, or they might be even more actively involved in biblical attempts to do justice in the world than those who might hold to this sort of Christ against culture position. Niebuhr sort of considers them to be missionaries to the aristocratic class and the middle class. They have an ability to speak to the leading groups in society. They're not going to have any problem going to the opera house or to the ballet or, or to the theater and and wondering where Christ might be present in that. They have no problem seeing Christ activity present in those forms of art and those forms of high society. They're not going to feel as if you have to pass out tracts to people in Africa before you build wells for the poorest of the poor there. These people may also be leading scientists in major academic institutes and have no problem attending church on Sunday in a, in a way that seems much more difficult to have happened in the Christ-against-culture mindset. But the problem that comes with the Christ-of-culture position is that, again, it tends to distort the biblical portrayal of Jesus, and the church loses its prophetic voice to potentially correct culture. And in an odd way, it actually tends to be legalistic, just like Christ against culture tends towards legalism. It's just that this legalism is a legalism found in one's ability to have relationship through God, with God through the law, but this is a law established through reason. Christ against culture tends towards legalism because your ability to have a right standing before God is often communicated to you as a result of your ability to follow God's special revelation. Both are legalism because they place at the center of salvation and right relationship with God human effort as the means of establishing relationship with God. Now, some people are so hurt by their experiences in Christ against culture mindsets that it's hard for them to be able to see the dangers in the Christ of culture mindset. But if you want an example from history that can point you to the great danger of the Christ of culture mindset, you need look no further than the Christianity of Nazi Germany in the 30s and into the, you know, the early 40s as the, the war came to a close. What a great example of the real dangers of Christ of culture. 
the liberal theology of the 19th century, the famous German liberal theology of the 19th century, which had communicated to the German people that there was no real distinction between Christ and their culture, led to catastrophe when we get into the era of the Third Reich, because the German people has been so programmed to see any movement in their own local national story, in their cultural story, any movement that was a movement of presumable progress was a movement that Christ was initiating and Christ was behind. If Christ is the active agent moving culture along, if he is identified with the values of one's own culture, then you can't prophetically critique movements like Nazism, which is why a person like Dietrich Bonhoeffer was such an outlier, because Bonhoeffer didn't buy that Christ of culture mindset. He could see that the witness of the real historic Jesus of the scriptures would have been against many of these ideals, in fact, if not most of these ideals being propagated by the Nazi movement. And so he remained uh, he remained steadfast as a prophetic witness against his culture during that time and this is the real danger of people who come out of difficult very difficult and challenging i understand it they come out of these sorts of christ against culture mindsets that have really struggled to make sense of reason and science and art and any of that stuff They've struggled to make sense of that, and they move into the pendulum swings. They end up in the other ditch. What happens is that they often lose their prophetic voice. They begun begun to become assimilated into the larger culture, and then when, what ends up happening is that there is no Christian voice heard from them at all because there is no distinction between the Christian voice and the voice of culture. This is why we see so many of the liberal high churches, many churches are in decline, guys. <laughs> but one of the reasons why liberal churches, and I don't mean just like politically liberal, you have to kind of break off, um, you have to separate uh, that term liberal from just being this sort of Republican Democrat thing, though there is an o- there does seem to be some sort of overlap between liberal churches, conservative churches, liberal politics, and conservative policy- politics in a left right sense. But liberal churches that had accepted this sort of Christ of culture mindset have become the ones that can't keep their doors open over the last 30 years. They're the ones that saw precipitous decline beginning in the 1970s. And there's a perfectly logical reason for it. Why would you come and gather at church? Why would you hear stories from scripture if the value of those stories is no different from the values that you're going to hear if you watch a series on Netflix or you stay at home and you listen to a TED Talk. In that case, church may just be a place where you get an extra emphasis on the goodness that you think you already know. And it might give you an outlet to participate in sort of community, kind of community activities that that might contribute to the common good. Things like doing community cleanup projects or 
working on some sort of environmental issue or working on some sort of social justice-related issue. And in that way, guys, I do want to be clear, churches like that do make valuable contributions to communities, but they are shrinking. They are in decline. If reason alone is sufficient, then we can get our reasoning and we can experience truth, goodness, and beauty in the culture that we already have, and we need not come to church. The thing that is now, just now, starting to um, become a reality to many evangelical churches that have embraced the Christ against culture mindset is that both Christ of culture and Christ against culture churches are in decline. There was a time in which the, the Christ against culture message was very, very popular, and it was a rallying cry to people who, who had these sort of general Judeo-Christian values and saw the culture around them in a sort of state of, you know, crisis, and they came back to the church to have these sorts of values and to protect these sorts of values with their children. But we're now seeing evangelical churches in decline. And again, as I've brought up in previous podcasts, this past year, for the first time in U.S. history, there are more people who affiliate, who say that they don't affiliate with any religious tradition, the nuns, than there are of Catholics, evangelicals, or mainline Protestants. Thankfully, these two options, these two extremes are not the only positions that we have available to us. Niebuhr offers three median positions in between Christ against culture and Christ of culture, which may provide us with a better roadmap for finding Christ in this vast interrelated web of culture. In the next episode, we'll talk about those three positions, mediating positions between Christ against culture and Christ of culture, and see if any one of those provide us with a a better map to navigate where Christ may be at and may be found in culture. So thanks for listening, guys. I know many of you reached out to me after the episode on understanding the uh, afterlife terminology, and we're eager to hear a second part. I wasn't quite ready to dive into what I had hinted at, an explanation of the, the three major ways that Christians have interpreted what Gehenna is and the the final fire of judgment throughout church history. I wasn't quite ready to delve into that. I wanted to to jump into the subject of uh, Christ and culture because it come up come up in the last episode too. And so I wanted to provide some clarification. We'll do at least probably one other part to this series again where I'm going to talk about those three median positions and maybe help us process about which option is best or do we use different options at different times depending on what is happening in the world. So I want to take another episode to explore that. Also working on this summer getting some guests lined up. I love having those conversations. I gain so much from it. I've heard from many of you that you do as well. But it is the summertime. You know, here in Minnesota, this is like, we've got like three months of sunshine before it feels like we're back in winter again. So we try to try to soak that up with my family. But 
not just for me, the, you know, many people use the summer months for travel, vacation, getaway, especially people in the academic fields and in ministry. Many of the people that I'm talking to that are pastors or theologians or professors. So um, booking those conversations is a little bit more challenging here in the summer months, but we're going to try to get a few at least this summer as we do some other, some other series and other topics here. So thank you again for your support. I would love to uh, ask you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's one of the best ways people find this. Even if you don't want to type out a review, just to go and click and give it whatever amount of stars that you think this, uh, this program is worth and to also consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. There's tiered rewards, uh, sort of, even if it's just a little bit to you, a lot of people contributing a little bit can help this podcast go to the next level and can help support the work that I'm doing to, uh, to bring these sorts of valuable educational conversations, informative conversations to you guys. So thank you to those supporters who are already doing that. I'm going to invite you to do that. All those sorts of links will be available in the description below. So until next time, 